0: Today we begin part five of our study through the book of Joshua. Part five begins right now. Of course, all of these are online by going to the church website through the link provided that will bring you to the SoundCloud site or by searching on SoundCloud Lynchburg City Church. Part five. So that means if you weren't here for the first four parts, you might not have much of an idea of what's going on. So I'll be brief in in, in recapping this. But last time in Joshua we see that the bottom line up front, this story is about land. That's what the story is about. We look back into the part one, into the prequel, into the Torah, into the Pentateuch, into the first five books, and we see God's plan, His redemptive plan, beginning with Abraham and the promises to make him a father of many nations and to give him a land flowing with milk and honey. And we see this plan happening through the Exodus, through redeeming his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And here in Joshua, we see the fulfillment of God's plan, the fulfillment of God's promises. Beyond the battlefields of Joshua, this book is primarily concerned with the land, with taking the land and finding rest. And for those of you today who need rest, I would invite all of you to come to me, as Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If that's you today, I would invite you, invite you to come to Jesus for rest. To come to him who can give you rest for your soul. And so, we begin our story today in Joshua chapter 3. Verse 1, it says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, they came to the river, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. So they're encamped right outside the river. Verse 2, At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried out by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now, at first glance first glance, it may seem very, very similar, if not the exact same orders that were given back in Joshua chapter 1, verse 11. But I'm going to argue here, and I think rightly so, that this is not the same set of orders, this is not the same time period as we see in Joshua chapter 1, 11. First and foremost, if you look at Joshua 1, 11, he says this, "'Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you're to pass over this Jordan.'" It's not the the same instructions in Joshua 1.11 as in 3.2 because it says within three days, i.e. before, right? Within three days, get them ready for within three days. uh, I'm speaking to you before the three days have passed. But the time period in Joshua 3.2 is quite different. In fact, it says in Joshua 3.2, at the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. In case you're wondering, officers go through the camp, on more than one occasion. And this is exactly what's taking place. Not only that, but the the instructions given in chapter one, verse 11, are actually different than the commands given in chapter three, verse two. In chapter one, verse 11, the instructions are limited to the preparation of the provisions for the short trip ahead of them. But in chapter three, verse two, the instructions concern what the people are to do when they see the Ark of the Covenant. So what we see is essentially time period Days 1, 2, and 3 are in chapter 1, and then we see days uh, 4, 5, and 6 in chapter 3, with day 7 being the day that they're going to cross the Jordan. This is all taking place within the span of one week. But what's really crucial here is the instructions in verse 3. And notice this. Command the people, verse 3, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out. From your place and follow it. The most sacred, the most holy physical possession that Israel had was the ark, according to Exodus 25 22, Numbers 7, 89, Numbers 10, 35 to 36, and 1 Samuel 4 4. It was the most holy, sacred, physical possession that Israel had because it symbolized the very presence of God. It's not just a box. It's a box that symbolized his very presence. And within the ark, there were three different items contained, which were symbols of Israel's relationship with God. The Ten Commandments were in the ark. Moses' brother Aaron, the high priest, his rod was in the ark, and a jar of manna was also in the ark, according to Exodus 25, 16, 25, 21, 40, 20, and Hebrews 9, 4. But another thing you you hear that he mentions is how the ark is being carried by the Levitical priest. The priests were those from the tribe of Levi. And it's important to to understand that while all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests, and I'll say that again in case you got caught up in in the lingo, if you were a priest... That meant you were from the tribe of Levi, but just because you were from the tribe of Levi didn't necessarily mean that you would be a priest because some of them had other jobs other than the priestly jobs. They had other duties. They had other responsibilities, and part of that was carrying the ark. They couldn't touch the ark. The ark had to be carried in a very proper way. They had to carry the ark on poles. There was this guidance given in Exodus 25, 12-13, 37, 3-5, and Numbers 4, 4-15. the ark symbolized, understand this, grasp this, God's physical presence with the people. That's what it symbolized. And, and because so, not only was there a special way, he couldn't touch the ark. He had to carry it a certain way. But there was also guidance that, that he wants the people to have. And he says, I want you to follow it, but not too closely. In fact, we see this in the very next verse, because he says, follow it, Right? Get ready to follow. The priests are going to show up. They're going to have the ark. They're going to go ahead of you. Then that's when you know you need to follow it. Verse 4. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it. About 2,000 cubits. That's like 1,000 yards. That's 10 football fields, okay? 1,000 yards, about 10 football fields. I want you to follow it, but don't follow too closely. Follow it, but not too closely. 1,000 yard distance from the ark. And you know, when I read numbers in the Bible, 2,000 cubits this, 24 cubits this, uh, this color yarn, whatever, whatever, I I oftentimes just like, okay, that's the part that I just want to just kind of glance over, okay? Not really interested. But this is really important here. In fact, I would argue that verse 4 is probably one of the most important verses in the whole chapter. The fact that he prescribes the distance of 2,000 cubits. The emphasis is on the sacredness, the awesomeness of God's glory represented by the ark. The, the ark symbolized God's presence among his people. And that presence was not to be taken lightly. It was not to be taken lightly. In fact, there's one story in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3, where the people were on the brink of war with the Philistines, and they're going to go out to battle and almost kind of in, I guess you'd say, Using it sort of like a lucky rabbit's foot, they decide to get the ark, go into battle, and as a result, God kills 30,000 Israelites. Dead. Dead. Why? Because of what the ark symbolized. It symbolized God's presence, His awesomeness, His glory, His holiness, and this is not to be taken lightly, it's not to be abused. At all. And there's a lot of application here. See, when we think of two aspects of God's nature, I think we have a tendency to emphasize one of them over the other. When we think of two aspects of God's nature, we might think, well, God is close He is comforting, he is a friend to me, and all those things are true. And and all those things are very valuable and precious, that he is a close, comforting presence, that he is a friend to me. But like anything else, overemphasizing one point to such an extreme can make ash out of the other point. It can. Right? I I love the sovereignty of God, and when I say sovereignty of God, I think Psalms 115.3 best explains what I mean. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wills to do. That's what I mean when I say God is sovereign, right? But even an, overempo- an emphasis on the sovereignty of God to such an extreme can be a problem because some people overemphasize the sovereignty of God so much that they undercut the responsibility of man. Look, at we were in a membership class today and we, someone brought up a uh, second... Timothy 2.25, that God may perhaps grant them a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Well, if God is sovereign, which he is, and God grants a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, which he does, well, then I don't need to tell people about Jesus because God's either going to grant them a heart of repentance or not. Well, hold on one second. That's not what the text says, especially when you read the the previous verses there in chapter 2. You see, my point is, An overemphasis of one particular thing in the Bible to an extreme can undercut another very valuable, important truth as well. And when we think coming back to the two natures of God, I find that more often than not, the one that's emphasized, the one that's set up above on a pedestal, is the fact that God is a close, comforting presence. He is a friend, right? That's true. But there's another aspect of God's nature, and that is, He is awesome and He is fearsome, and He is wondrous, and He is glorious, and He is holy. He is. And many times we make light of His holiness. We make light of His power. We make light of His glory. Even in how we treat God's name. When I was a a cadet back in 06... It was my second year as a cadet. And I had just been gone for the summer. And I had lost a little bit of my military bearing. And I'm talking to my professor of military science, Major Foy. And uh, real likable, easy, talking, easy to talk to guy. And I'm talking to him. And uh, the, one of the NCOs, Sergeant Alexander, he's standing there. And at one point in the conversation, because I was just, I was a little bit too carefree and casual. Like I said, I lost my military bearing. He said, at one point, he said, Mr. Decreon, yeah, you want to you wanna try throwing in a couple sirs in, in, into your sentences while you're talking to Major Foy? He is an officer. I was like, all right, yeah, like, oh, come on, Joe, like, get with the program. But this is where I'm going with this. I think even, even, when, I, even when we talk about, like, this, I think we've, even how we talk to or mention God is so casual. I mean, I hear people all the time. Jesus, or, oh, my God, or God. And I'm thinking, you're going to add another sentence there? Because, like, if you're evoking the name of our Creator and King, I hope there's another sentence going to come out of your mouth. You're going to say, Jesus, God, oh my God, I hope there's a prayer, a supplication there. But I think for many of us, we've lost our military bearing, you might say. Just like I had We've, we've overemphasized the, the almost casual, friendship, comforting personal presence of God to such a degree that we have forgotten that He's also a holy God, a powerful God, a righteous God. And we, and we need to get that. We, we need to be very careful that we don't take lightly who He is. Otherwise, we run the risk of irreverence. We do. Say, oh, like Jesus is like my homeboy, right? No, he's not your homeboy who you kick it with and play Madden. That's that's not who Jesus is. So, uh, uh, guys, I think what I'm saying, I, th- I think is just there, right? We overemphasize his closeness, his personal presence, his friend, his friendship to us. Those things are true. Those things are pre- precious, but to such an extent that we run the risk of irreverence. We run the risk of irreverence intentionally or even unintentionally. Think about the story at Sinai with Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain. He says, show me your glory. He says, okay, I'll show you my glory. But first I need you to go and get in between the crevices of the rock, okay? Get between the crevices of the rocks around you and I will come by. I'll come by and I'll hold my hand right out to the side, right? And I'll block you from seeing my full glory. You'll only see partial, a partial glimpse of who I am. Otherwise, uh, you'll die, Moses you'll die Moses comes down from the mountain his his face is shining and all the people are freaked out they're like what is going on right right there's Moses in the crevice of the rock and God is walking past him and Moses I just imagine like tucking down like he can only look at the ground because the glory of God is so intense that he will die if he is exposed to much more than that he is a friend who loves us, whose personal presence is comforting. But make no mistake, he is a holy God. He is a powerful God. Many of us have forgotten Solomon's wisdom to us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise it. There is an appropriate fear and awe that we are to have of him that I think the church needs to be reformed in this sense that we've gotten so far away by overemphasizing one aspect of his nature. We sin, we are irreverent to the other nature. We dishonor him in that sense. Oh, he is a holy God. Tell the people to follow the ark, but don't tell them to come any closer than 2,000 cubits. Don't have them come any closer than 1,000 yards. Do you see Him that way? Do you think of Him that way? Or is your relationship with God just simply casual? We need to be very careful. I think not just how we think, but what we say about Him. You're going to follow the ark, but you're not going to get too close. You're not going to get too close at all. Is real because the ark symbolizes who he is. He's powerful, he's holy, he's righteous. Understand these things. And then he says this at the end of verse 4 in order that you may know the way that you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. In order that you may know the way. Like literally, like you've never gone to Canaan, you've never crossed the Jordan, at least you've never crossed the Jordan like this. So follow the Ark, okay? There's no Google Maps. You're following the Ark, right? Which, where do I go? You follow the Ark. I'm going to go into Canaan. We've never been to Canaan. We're going to go over the Jordan. We've never been over the Jordan, not like this. Okay, that makes sense. We're going to follow God. And yet there's almost like this subtle, like double meaning, right? Literally like they don't know the way. And yet at the same time, when we understand the Ark represents the physical presence of God there with the people in following the ark, they are following God's way, right? So you have this figurative language that's being applied, God's way, one that's very common in the Old Testament. Follow God's way, and in those cases where it's used, it usually refers to right living. So not only are the people following, because they're like, okay, do we go left, do we go right? Oh, we follow the ark, okay. So we're literally walking this way, but... We're following God's way in so that it relates to right living. She so gets double meaning almost there. I want to follow the ark. Why? Because I want to follow God. And God will no doubt show them which way they are to go literally, but God will show them the way that they're supposed to walk spiritually. And this idea, right, that it's important to walk the right way, literally Spiritually, it's important to rock, walk the, the right way, is continued, especially in the next verse. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate. Consecrate. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wondrous things. You're going you're gonna to see things you've never seen before Tomorrow. His power is going to be on full display tomorrow. So consecrate yourselves. This word consecrate, it means sanctify. It means holy. It means sacred and holiness. Holiness is a very important concept in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Consecrating themselves would include ceremonial washings. Consecrating themselves would include abstinence from sexual relations, from certain foods, different things that God had instructed them but the core idea when I say consecrate, when he says consecrate, is this. Consecrate is separating things, removing things, removing anything that would contaminate their relationship with God. Why? Because he's perfect. Because he's holy. Because he's righteous. Consecrate. Consecrate. So the core idea of consecrate is removing anything that might hinder, that might be an obstacle to following the ark. Like literally and spiritually, to following God's way. You, you gotta get that out of the way. You seeing some applications here, maybe? I see a lot of applications. Like I think we all probably there's something maybe that is that obstacle, that hindrance. Probably the application that I think fits well within the demographic in this room is the one I'll mention, but you're probably not going to like it, but that's okay, because I'm going to say it anyways. Not always, okay? Not always. But more often than not, I find one of the biggest obstacles that you might say needs to get consecrated, that needs to get removed when it comes to following God, ends up being romantic relationships Very few times in the almost five years that I've been pastoring here at Lynchburg City Church, do I hear stories, and I've heard a lot of stories, from people who say, yeah, I got into this relationship, and now my walk with God is better than ever. Very few times do I ever hear that. In fact, the majority of the time is, well, we broke up, but man... I feel like, like me and God are just so much better right now. Like, I've had so much spiritual growth. I've been in the Word so much. I've been praying so much. I've been with and loving and serving the people of God so much. That's been my experience. Maybe you have a different experience than that. I find that in most instances, things that are obstacles and roadblocks to you, you might say, following the ark, tends to be that. I would say, in this context... That's probably the number one thing. That's usually the number one obstacle. A few times, there's, there's always few exceptions. There's always few exceptions. But that tends to be one of the, the biggest stumbling blocks. He says, Israel, buckle up. Consecrate yourselves. Remove the things that are stumbling blocks, that are obstacles to you following the ark, to you following God, to you going his way. Because tomorrow... He's going to blow your mind. His power, his greatness is going to be on display in a way you've never seen before. So, he continues. Verse 6, And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. Verse 7, The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I'm going to be with you. He's going to exalt Joshua. Not simply for the sake of Joshua. But that the people of Israel might know that the living God is with them in confirming their new leader. Remember, this is a brand new leader. A brand new commander has taken over. They've only ever known one leader. His name was Moses. Same with their parents. So He's going to confirm Joshua, not simply for Joshua's sake, to make him feel great, but for the people that they know that the living God is with them Verse 8, as for you, command the priest to bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua, verse 9, said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Listen carefully. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. By the way, Canaanites, Amorites, sometimes these terms are all inclusive regardless regardless of their ethnic identity. The Canaanites, Amorites, they can be different uh, ethnicities in those groups. But see something. See this. Here is how, verse 10, you shall know that the living God is among you, that he is going to drive them out. He's going to drive them out. He's not just going to do an amazing miracle and part the, the Jordan so they can walk across, but there is a greater purpose here, and the purpose is this. The larger purpose is more than just getting the people from point A to B. The purpose is to demonstrate that Israel's God, the living God, was among them. That's the purpose. And of course, this is what the ark symbolizes, right? The ark, the ark symbolizes his physical presence among the people. This is more than just getting them from point A to point B. It is to demonstrate that Israel's God, the living God, was among them. It is this forceful reminder to Israel that their God, he's not like other gods. Or as Rahab said last week in chapter two, for the Lord your God, the Lord Yahweh, for the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. So when he says in verse ten, verse ten, here is how you're going to know. This is maybe real clear. This is a forceful reminder that to Israel, that their God, He's not like any ordinary God. He's not. Of course, this is what we've been talking about the whole time, right? He is holy and powerful and righteous and pure and glorious. He is. So behold, verse 11, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. It's literally going to go over the river, over the water. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the 12 tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. More on that next week. And when the soles of the feet of the priest, bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. It's going to stop flowing if you didn't catch that. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap verse 14 so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the jordan with the priest bearing the ark of the covenant before the people and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water and there's a parenthesis there at least in my english standard version bible you know, the jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest in other words it's the rainy season this is when the river is the most intense this is when the water is the most forceful it's when the water is at the highest verse 16 the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at adam the city that is beside the Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arba, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground. On dry ground. You see that? Don't miss that. On dry ground. On dry ground until all the nation finish passing over the Jordan. Once again, this isn't about simply getting them from point A to point B into Canaan. This is about God showing off. This is about God showing who he is, the living God, the glorious one, the all-sufficient one, who is holy and who is pure. As I mentioned the water is at its highest point right now. So when they say that they all crossed dry ground, that's of particular importance to us in understanding this story. It's not, how'd they pull this off? Well, there was, it was during the dry season, or they found a shallow area to cross. No. In fact, the text makes clear it's very not the case here. They, they crossed on dry ground. Not wet ground, dry ground. Not muddy ground, dry ground. Not murky ground, dry ground. How does that happen? It doesn't happen. That's the point. Apart from God doing a miracle, doing what only God can do, it doesn't happen. That's why he says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. Like, like there, there is no shortcut here. How does this happen? doesn't happen. This does not happen by any other means than the living God (laughs) doing what only He can do. They're going to walk across on dry ground. Dry ground. How, God? That's how. We see from the story the holiness of God very much on display. The power of God very much on display. The might of God very much on display. And it would be easy enough, I suppose, to, to walk out of here not having really grasp this thing called holiness. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is if we walk... Away from this text, without grasping the holiness of God, it doesn't impact us the way it should. We need to grasp the holiness of God in more than just terms of, well, he's holy. And, you know, because, yeah, we've got to fear him. Because, you know, Solomon says, you know, the fear of the Lord is beginning to wisdom. So, he is holy. We should fear him. Excuse me. We should fear him. And, well, if if we don't, uh, well, we'll get in trouble. So, he's holy. We should fear him. We need to obey him. And if we don't, we're in trouble. So in that sense, in that sense, holiness becomes nothing more than a matter of keeping the commandments. And that doesn't make God look great. That makes you look good, right? I understand the holiness. God's holy. I should fear him. And as a result, I should obey him so I don't get into trouble. So all I'm going to do is just keep the commandments. Well, hold on a second. Like, if, if that is the limitation of your understanding of the holiness of God, you've missed the story. You've missed the point. Because all that says is, well, you're really good at keeping commandments and obeying God. Like, you're the Christian of the year. I mean, essentially. That's it. See, his holiness, his holiness becomes real when God is exalted above all else especially, especially those things that are obstacles to us in following him. You got that? His holiness becomes real when God is exalted above all else, especially those obstacles we talked about, like consecrate yourselves, remove the things that need to get removed in order to follow God. See, the key, the key here is to be more satisfied in him than anything else. That's the key. Especially, oh, by the way, when you're suffering or things aren't going very well. That's the key. And so, like, many of us, we try to be good. Like, ah, I should be good. I need to obey God without any thought to this at all. And that's a problem. In fact, I would argue if that is all that you're grasping of holiness, like, he's a holy God, i got to fear him, therefore I need to obey him and just do good things... Satan, I am guessing, would probably be applauding you. Because you've missed the whole point. Because you're going to go fight a battle on a front that's unwinnable. And you turn into nothing more than a moralist. Just do good things. Yeah, I understand the holiness of God. Just do good things. No. It's much more than that. So when we think about the holiness of God, I think it's important that we not just throw around terms, but that we also define the terms that we are discussing. So, I'm thinking about this a couple days ago. Alright, I need to be able to... I need to be able to say something. And I was drawing a blank, so I did some research. There's a pastor you might be familiar with. His name's John Piper. And... I'm thinking, what would, what would John Piper say about the holiness of God? <clears throat> it's helpful when we get stuck, when there's, God provides us Bible teachers to, to help us navigate some of these really difficult things. And so John Piper shares a story that he was having a conversation with his wife, Noelle. And they're talking about things that are rare. And you think about, okay, something that's rare. It's rare, <clears throat> you might say, because it's unique. It's, it's unique, therefore it's rare. And so he asked his wife, Noel. he's like, why, why do you think we use gold as a standard? Money used to be backed by, by gold, but not anymore. But well, why do we use it as a standard? And she said, well, because it's rare. Gold is rare. Gold is unique. OK. Then he said, well, so are fish. Fish are rare. There are some really exotic fish that are really, really expensive. Why not use them <coughs> as a standard, you might say. And she replied, she said, well, because fish die and they rot. So they they lack a certain permanence, and that's a problem. So, So gold is not just rare, but gold is also permanent. But the fact is, is it's not always accessible. I mean, there might be gold, for all we know, feet, hundreds of feet, I don't know, below the ground right here. But there's a problem because it's not accessible. We can't get to it. And and so, thinking this through, especially in terms of the holiness of God, I think when we understand the holiness of God, it begins, it begins, not with a list of, okay, uh, he's holy, we need to fear him, therefore we need to obey him, otherwise we'll get in trouble, as much as it is understanding him in, in terms of who he is. He is infinitely valuable. I don't know if you've ever thought of God in terms of him being valuable. You think of gold, like gold's valuable, but... God, do you think of God in terms of being valuable? Because he is. He is the rarest of all beings. Yes, And oh, by the way, he is totally accessible through his son, Jesus. You can come to him, right? All of you who are heavy laden, who've been trying to do this thing called being a Christian on your own for so long. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. You don't even know half the time. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. So not only is he infinitely valuable, not only is he the rarest of all beings, not only is he totally accessible through the person of his only son, Jesus Christ, and what he did in his life, death, burial, resurrection, but he is the most permanent of persons. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is Alpha. He is Omega. And he is infinitely valuable. See, grasping the holiness of God is more than just being a moral good person. Grasping the holiness of God begins with understanding who God is. Because only that will really help you to be able to consecrate, right? To remove those obstacles, those hindrances in your life to following God. Only in that will you be able to successfully consecrate your life. Removing the things that shouldn't be there. And because of this, we need to see him as more valuable. More valuable, like gold. Pretty valuable. But think gold, but then times it by, I don't know, a million. And you're on the right track. So he's infinitely valuable. Like, you want to crush temptations in your life that need to be consecrated, that need to be removed? If you really want to, you want to follow the ark with the people of Israel, you want to follow God, then you've got to grasp the holiness of God. And that begins with grasping who he is and who is he. He's better, right? Gold times a million. He is the rarest, Of all beings, he is totally accessible through his son, Jesus, and his permanence outweighs anything else. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's totally permanent, right? It begins with grasping who he is. He's infinitely valuable. He's better, like a thousand times better than anything that you might currently be trying to get past as an obstacle in your life, as a hindrance that needs to be removed. He's better than that. Because he is the living God. And you guys, we've got to get this. It has to be more. It has to be more than do this, don't do this. Otherwise, you're just a moral person. Satan's applauding you like, oh yeah, be a, be a moral person. Nothing more. Be a moral person. Just, 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 just do good things. I have plenty of Mormon friends who do more good things than probably most of us combined. It must be beyond that. Because otherwise, this is gonna happen. You're gonna be like, alright, I need to, I need to follow the ark of the covenant, right? I need to follow God. And so I'm gonna consecrate that. Oh, there's an obstacle here in my life. I just need to remove that, right? I just, just don't do that thing. Whatever that thing is, right? I move it. And we take like one or two steps. And then as soon as we've removed that one thing, we're maybe five feet further and boom, there's another obstacle. So we repeat the process. And, and, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It is a affront that we cannot win. At some point, it's, it has to be more than just removing this, take one step or two, removing this. At some point, we have to grasp the holiness of God because I think only that will help us to effectively consecrate the things in our lives that need to be. We've got to get past, don't do this, don't do that. Versus when we begin to see God and His holiness for who He is, right? He's the rarest of all beings. He's totally accessible through His Son. And His permanence outlasts anyone or anything ever. He's the I AM. And then you say, wow, He is pretty valuable. He is. Right? He's more valuable. He's more beautiful than whatever this obstacle is in my life from keeping me from following him. Like, he's just better. It's not about just stop doing this, stop doing this, but replacing those things and seeing him as better. That's, that's how you walk away here with the proper understanding of his holiness. Yes, he is a close friend to us. His personal presence is comforting. It is. But make no mistake who he is. Who he is. He is the living God. As the band comes, I want to pray for us. Lord. Help us. Help us. Help us, Jesus. You don't need any more Christian moralist. You, You don't need Christian of the years. Lord, help us to grasp your holiness in more terms than just, we just need to obey you. Otherwise, we're in trouble yes, yes, we should obey you. Of course, God, but I pray that we would see you as better, as infinitely more valuable, rarer than gold, and yet more accessible and more permanent than anything else in this universe. That we would enjoy you, God. That we would enjoy you. That we would treasure you. Because that's what makes you look good, God. Us being really awesome Christians of the years, that makes us look good. Help us to treasure you and your holiness in every aspect of your nature. Not just the closeness, not just your personal presence, but all the other aspects as well. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to simply remove things in our life that are obstacles to following you, but that we would replace those things with you, the source of all infinite joy. Help us to see you as better.